Hey, this is Matt Howell, the RUF campus minister at App State. When I originally recorded this message uh, last week, the recording device that I use messed up on me and did not uh, record adequately. So here I am re-recording this thing, giving it the remix here in the RUF office, which is already admittedly kind of awkward that I'm doing this, much less that I'm... uh, talking about sex here by myself in the RUF office. But all that to say, here we go. But we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Hosea tonight. And before we read our passage, I just wanted to state up front that I'm well aware that there's a wide range of backgrounds present for those who hear this particular uh, text. I mean, not everybody... Uh, who listens as a Christian. Maybe you don't even know what you are spiritually. There's lots of different spiritual backgrounds and a whole lot of different sexual backgrounds represented as well. Some people uh, have never had sex. Some of you have. Some of you are wrestling with questions such as, why do I feel more attracted to my own gender than I do the opposite sex? Some of you have undergone horrific sexual treatment, either by being sexually abused or sexually assaulted. Uh, Some of you have been taken advantage of. Some of you have had abortions. All of that to say is that I know all of that is present. And so just hear me say on the front end that I want to be extremely careful and delicate as we work through these issues. And so for the focus of this particular message, I'm really going to be addressing more of how we act out on and participate in sexual brokenness, not so much as being, uh, I'm not addressing being uh, victims uh, of sexual assault or sexual abuse. And all all I'll say about that in passing is that uh, I'm just grateful that we serve a God that is committed to justice and the hope of the Christian faith is that one day all wrongs will be made right. So with that intro, uh, let me just go ahead and read this passage from Isaiah, which we're reading a few selected verses out of the first three chapters. But we'll begin in verse 2 of chapter 1 and go from there. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from the Lord. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I brought her, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. And then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, puts it this way. There is no getting away from it. 
The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct, as it now is, has gone wrong. One or the other. Of course, being a Christian, I think it is the instinct which has gone wrong. And then Lewis sets up this thought experiment. He says, okay, imagine you go to this foreign country, and one night as you're walking around in this foreign city, you see all these men going into this building. And so you go in as well and because you're curious, and the insides look similar to a strip joint. And you sit down, and the lights are low, and there's sort of this trancey house music bumping. And someone comes out from behind the curtain, and they're holding a covered plate, like a covered dish. And all the guys are on the edges of their seat. And the person on the stage seductively, slowly removes the covering, and on the plate is a pork chop. And all the guys start hooping and hollering, and they're trying to put dollar bills on the plate. And then, okay, someone else comes out, and then they slowly take off the covering, and on that plate is a pile of bacon. And so Lewis concludes, if you were to walk into a country like this, you would think, okay, something has gone wrong with these people's appetite for food. And so you you might conclude, okay, this country is starving. There is no food here. But what if you walked out of the strip joint, and you saw that there were restaurants on every corner? And there were posters of food everywhere you looked. And every time you checked your email, there would be images that popped up of, you know, like hamburgers or something. You would conclude, okay, something is severely messed up about this country. They have an unhealthy obsession with food. And here's his point. His point is the fact that we are so inundated with sex in our culture shows us that something is off. There is a balance that is thrown off, and uh, his point is to show us that our sexual instinct is, is now messed up. Things are sexually broken. We are sexually broken, and you'll find out the Bible actually agrees with him. And so from this passage that we just read in Hosea, I want to look at three aspects of the brokenness of sex. I want to look at the extent of sexual brokenness. I want to look at the progression of sexual brokenness. And then the healing of sexual brokenness. So the extent, the progression, and the healing. And we'll begin with the extent of sexual brokenness. If you look in verse uh, 2 of chapter 1, Hosea was an Old Testament prophet, and God tells him to do something very bizarre. Instead of giving Hosea a verbal message to speak, which would have been normal, God gives Hosea something to do. He says, okay, I want you to go out and I want you to marry a prostitute, a hooker, someone who has sex with men for money. And by the way, uh, she will not be faithful to you and she will have children in your marriage and you won't be the father. Now, why in the world is God telling Hosea to do that? Well, God is going to use their marriage as a graphic illustration of the way that Israel, God's people, relate to him. Now, there's lots of things that we could talk about. We could talk about this from lots of different angles. I simply want to highlight that God is using a sexually broken prostitute to describe his covenant people. In other words, the church is described here as a whore. Now, here's why this is relevant to our discussion. is because our tendency when we think about sexual sin and brokenness is that we like to think about it out there in the culture. 
And I want to destroy that lie and bring the conversation in here. There, there is not some line that separates the sexual brokenness from being out there in the world and being in here with you and with me. Reformed theologians refer to the extent of sin in us as total depravity, which, which basically means that every part of you is affected by sin. You in your totality are broken. This means that sin has distorted and it's poisoned your hearts, your minds, your wills, and your sexuality. And this means that everybody in this room is sexually broken. Everyone who is hearing this is sexually broken. Even if you've never kissed another human being before, you are sexually broken just like everyone else. And so we need to address some lies at this point, lies particularly that Christians want to believe. One lie that Christians want to believe in particular is this. If I'm a heterosexual, I'm not sexually broken. If I'm a heterosexual, then I'm not sexually broken. And that is a lie. Your heterosexuality does not protect you from the brokenness that we all share. I have an old pastor, uh, Giorgio, from Charlotte, and uh, he was having this conversation in a coffee shop with a group of lesbians one day, and one of these women uh, was going to his church at the time, and they were talking about all sorts of things, God and faith and sexuality, and one of these lesbian women says to him, I, I think that God cares about homosexuals, and Giorgio says, yeah, of course he does. And she goes on and she says, I, you know, I just don't think that God honestly cares about who I'm having sex with. And that's when Giorgio kind of cuts her off and he says, oh, I'm so sorry. I mean, God cares about everything. And that means that God cares about your sexuality. He is going to mess with your sexuality. He, he, he's going to put pressure on your very sexuality. And at that point, there's this woman uh, from his church and she walks in to the coffee shop and she's across the room. And so he says to these lesbians that he's talking with, he says, okay, you see that woman across the way? That person is in my church. She's a complete heterosexual. And she wouldn't mind me telling you this, but I know because I'm her pastor that, that her marriage is in trouble right now because God is messing with her sexuality and with their sexuality. And, he is a, and, he, and he's right. If you are a homosexual and you are responding to God's grace, he is going to start messing with your sexuality and that's because it is broken. That area of your life is not off limits to him. And if you are a heterosexual and you're responding to God's grace, he's going to start messing with your sexuality. It's because it's broken. That area is not off limits to him. But here's, an, here's another lie that Christians want to believe. We want to believe if I'm a, Christ, if I'm a virgin, I'm not sexually broken. If I haven't had intercourse, I am pure. We like to believe that if we haven't had sex, we are pure, that we somehow begin this life innocent and pure. And the Bible looks at you and says the exact opposite, that you actually begin this life broken, sexually broken even. I mean, everything from your thought life to your emotions about sexuality, it is distorted and bent in a direction away from honoring God. And all I have to say, here's my point. Everyone is sexually broken, myself included. I am sexually broken. Jesus is messing with and, and, and transforming my sexuality, and I desperately need Jesus' redemption in this area of my life, too. 
That's the extent of sexual brokenness. That's the extent of it. It covers everyone, that there's no area on this planet or in us as individuals that sin has not distorted. But let's look at the progression of sexual brokenness. The second thing, the progression of sexual brokenness. And I'm going to camp here for longer than any other point, by the way, just to set your expectations. And also, on this point in particular, I'm getting a lot of help from uh, another RUF campus minister named Brent, Brent Harriman. He's the RUF guy at uh, uh, Tennessee. And I, I just want to walk through this downward progression of sexual brokenness. There's this downward progression, and we'll see that it, it kind of takes place in three stages. Sex becomes broken when sex becomes selfish. That's, that's the first stage of, of this progression of sexual degradation, that sex becomes broken when sex becomes selfish. Look back at this passage. If you look at chapter 2, verse 5, we get a little window into Gomer's heart. Gomer, by the way, is just, that's the name of the prostitute that Hosea the prophet marries. And so we get a little window into Gomer's heart. If you look at verse 5, I'll just read it. It says that she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. She is basically saying, I am running after these other men, these other lovers, because it benefits me. My sex life is a means to an end. I get something from it. And that end that I am serving is ultimately me. That sex is about me. And this really is the first step of sexual sin. It it is this distorted idea that we think sex is about me, that sex exists simply to make me feel good. And the reason that this is a distortion from God's original design is because sex is inherently created to be others-oriented, to be other-centered. Sex is when you give yourself away for the benefit of someone else. I quoted uh, Peter Berkowitz last week, who said that uh, if we look at the way that even our language of sex, if, if we look at our language of sex, we can see that even, even that shows us that it's become more and more disconnected from real relationships, and it's become more and more selfish and utilitarian. And so he says, you know, way back in the day, we used to refer to sex as making love. And then we started using this language of just simply having sex. And now we use this, this mechanical metaphor of just hooking up. But I'll, I want to add one more to his list, because now we use this language of getting laid, which really captures how self-oriented our thinking is about sex. That it's something I'm going to get, that I'm going to get a piece. I mean, do you see how utterly selfish this is? But really, of course, there is no form of sexuality that is more selfish and severed from real relationships than pornography and masturbation. Now, I could quote a ton of horrific statistics on this issue at this point, but I'm not going to, because really, basically, the message of all these statistics is communicating this, that most of you are addicted to pornography and are regularly masturbating. And that applies to both guys and girls, most of you are practicing sex with yourself. And the problem with masturbation is that it doesn't require you to care about anybody but yourself. Every time you participate in it, you are teaching yourself to think that sex is really about you. I mean, last week we said that the message of sex is this, all of me is yours forever. 
So when you masturbate, you are proclaiming a message that says you are committed exclusively to yourself. There's an article uh, called The Porn Myth that a woman named Naomi Wolf wrote a number of years ago, and she was explaining, it's very fascinating, she was explaining how in the 1980s, when pornography was increasing, it was becoming more and more um, accessible, there were these anti-porn activists who were fighting to limit the accessibility of pornography. Because their prediction was that if men start indulging more and more in pornography, then it's going to turn men into ravaging like sexual monsters. In other words, the prediction was that we will start seeing more and more rape and all sorts of sexual mayhem will follow the more that pornography kind of infiltrates the culture. But actually what's, what's interesting is that the exact opposite has occurred. Porn is not activating men's desire for women. It's actually turning them off. Now, why is that? Well, because how can a real human body with real skin pores and imperfections and weight compete with something that has been altered and airbrushed? And just to quote this article, it says this, For the first time in human history, the images power and allure have supplanted that of real naked women. Today, real naked women are just bad porn. Now, if you don't believe me, I want to quote you something from another article. Uh, a few years ago, John Mayer, mu musician, popular musician, was being interviewed, uh, and his thoughts on this subject of porn and masturbation were flat-out disturbing. Uh, I was going to quote a larger section uh, of this interview, but I just realized it's just it's just too graphic and it's too disturbing, for lack of a better word. But but here's what he says. He says this. I'll just quote one little part at the end. He says, "This is my problem now. Rather than meet somebody new, I would rather go home and replay the amazing experiences that I've already had." And then the, the interviewer asks. If this is the road that you're on right now of porn and masturbation, that this could lead to you where you would prefer having sex with yourself than with another woman. If you don't believe me that this is where some of you are heading, let me just tell you this. I know of several people, close friends of mine, who have so habitually indulged in this for such a long period of time that they are no longer attracted to their wife. That th this issue of their sexual brokenness has has crept into their marriage where they're having dysfunctional sexuality because the guy of the relationship has so perpetuated this addiction, this obsession of I, that I would rather have sex with myself than with another human. And so the first step in this progression of sexual brokenness is when sex becomes selfish. That's the first step. Here's the second step. It's when sex becomes your savior. Sex becomes broken when sex becomes your savior. Look again at chapter 2. If you look at verse 7, 
It says that Gomer, who's the prostitute, that she's she's it says she's chasing after other lovers. Now that word chase in the original Hebrew it's it's pretty strong. It means aggressive pursuit. It's like hunting when you're hungry. In other words, the idea here, the image here, is that the reason she's running so hard after other lovers is because she needs them. She's desperate for them. She really believes that she will find life. She will find her savior in the sex that she has with other men. Now, this exposes something deep in our hearts as well, I think, because our desire for sexual intimacy with another person more often than not, comes from a place of loneliness and sadness and fear. Deep in our core, because we are fallen, we are riddled with shame and loneliness and fear. And and there are a million ways to go about numbing that feeling, uh, food, drugs, alcohol, music. But more often than not, what we use to make us feel whole, what we use to save us, is sex. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Why is it that you sexually struggle the most when you're back home over summer or winter breaks? I mean, why is it that your addiction to porn intensifies then? Or, you know, you find yourself participating in these random makeout sessions. Why in those moments? Well, it's because you're lonely and you're isolated. Ben Gibbard, who's the lead singer of Death Cab for Cutie, he really comes to terms with this. In one of his songs, uh, A Lack of Color, he, he says this, Every girl in every girly magazine can't make me feel any less alone. Can't make me feel any less alone. But you have to see, that's the impulse. That sex will make me feel less alone than I currently feel. And that is why we so often return to our fantasies. I mean, this is what pornography is, by the way. It's just entering into a fantasy world, one in which unbelievably attractive people are looking at us and experiencing us as irresistible. I mean, have you ever thought about what is the root behind that? What is going on in our minds? Why do we want someone who is beautiful to be enraptured with us? It's because we don't experience that in real life. And we go there in our fantasies because what we are, what we are asking those images to do is to save us. I mean, women, from what I understand, are not as turned on by images, even though the use of pornography is steadily increasing for women. But the same idea applies for women. And I really am convinced that this is why the Twilight series is so popular. My wife, Catherine, read them, and she said to me, this is essentially emotional pornography. I mean, women read those books and and want someone to look at them as longingly as Edward looks at Bella. And so you you so desperately want to be desired like that, and so you enter into the story, and you are living vicariously through it. And you have to see, it is the same basic root behind pornography, where you are retreating into fantasy, and you are looking at sex and at intimacy and saying to it, save me, make me whole, fix this isolation, this loneliness that I'm experiencing. So this progression of sexual brokenness, it's first when sex becomes selfish, and then it's when sex becomes savior, and then thirdly, it's when sex becomes enslaving, enslaving. We see this with Gomer again, right? I mean, she's married to Hosea. 
She doesn't need the income from her prostitution any longer. So there's there's no financial reason for her to continue, you know, having sex with men for money. And yet she can't stop. She can't stop having sex with other men. She's addicted to it. She's enslaved to it. When sex rules and it consumes you and it's your obsession, you are enslaved. And when sexual brokenness gets to this stage, this explains why so many of you habitually mess up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. I mean, this is why you can swear to God, to yourself and to each other, that you will never do that again. And then you begin the ritual, which for some of you looks like going into a room, closing a door, turning on a movie that you have no intention of watching, and letting it go from there. I mean, others of you have different rituals where you just know because it is expected that when we hang out alone or when we get together at night, we are going to mess around. It is just the expectation. It is just a built-in element to our relationship now. But what happens is that something sets in afterward, maybe immediately, maybe a while later. But this thing that sets in is this feeling of shame and of guilt and the fear of other people finding out some level of despair, and this makes you unbelievably insecure. And what happens when you feel insecure? You want to do something that gives you a sense of security. And so what do you turn to to give you that sense of security again? You turn to sexuality or sexual activity, which only then produces more shame and guilt, which makes you feel more insecure. And and so you see there's this cycle of shame that some of you know all too well. And it's just this, it's a textbook example of addiction, of enslavement. Addiction is when you try to relieve your despair by indulging in the very thing that produces the despair. Addiction is, is when you try to relieve your despair by indulging in the very thing that's producing it. That is the progression of sexual brokenness. And and really, that leads to the last question, one last question that we need to answer, which is this. Where can you and I find healing for our sexual brokenness? Where can we find healing for this? Well, the answer is found in chapter 3. One famous pastor said that Hosea chapter 3 is the greatest chapter in your Bible. And here's why. Because remember, Hosea has married Gomer. She has cheated on him with tons of other men. She has wounded her husband in ways that are unthinkable. She's left her marriage, and now she finds herself stuck back in the prostitution ring. And so by the time we get to chapter 3, we find her now as the property of some pimp who has her put up for sale in a public market. And God tells Hosea, I want you to go to the market, and I want you to get her back. And so from verse 2 onward, we get a picture of this public market, which probably would have functioned a lot like like an auction. And Gomer is being sold as a slave, because, because no one would really have any more use for her at this point. And while the details of this auction are uncertain and definitely sparse, uh, this was a fairly common custom at the time. And so most likely she would have been um, up on a platform. Um, raised above everybody, stripped naked so that the potential buyers could see the product and bid on her. And her head is probably hanging down. Her eyes are uh, most likely closed, trying to shield herself from the shame. 
And so the bidding begins and you hear people shouting out three shekels, four shekels, five shekels. And then she hears somebody make a bid with a familiar voice and she recognizes the voice as Hosea. And she looks up and she's thinking, okay, why is my, why is my husband here? What is he doing here? And the bidding continues, but Hosea keeps outbidding everybody else. And the crowd looking in on this scene would probably be laughing and mocking Hosea as he's having to purchase back his own wife, who doesn't seem to want anything to do with him in the first place. I mean, this is completely humiliating for him, but he doesn't care. He keeps outbidding everyone else until you hear the auctioneer finally announce, sold to Hosea. And I can imagine that he probably covers her nakedness and tenderly walks her home. Now, Gomer has to be thinking, what? I mean, why? I mean, after all I have done. And then maybe the fear sets in where she's thinking, okay, he's just bought me back to abuse me or to make me pay for what I've done to him. But look at how tenderly he speaks to her in verse 3. He says, I I want to live with you, and I want you to live with me as my wife. But notice, he, he also confronts her sexual addiction. He says to her, okay, you have to stop. This is killing you. Just look at where your sin has brought you. And here's what is so beautiful. He accepts her as she is. But he loves her too much to let her remain as she is. He accepts her as she is, but he loves her too much to let her remain as she is. He is committed to seeing her full healing. He's committed to seeing her healed. Now, if this is a picture of the way that God relates to us, then what does that tell us about God? Well, this tells us that he pursues us and he purchases us. He pursues us and he purchases us. Okay, well, when do we see God pursuing us? Well, the claim of the Bible is that centuries after this scene, this auction scene, God actually leaves the comforts of heaven himself and takes on flesh and comes to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And what do we see Jesus doing? He is constantly hanging around people who are sexually broken, prostitutes, women who have cheated on their husbands, sex addicts, people that the rest of the world have written off as damaged goods. He is pursuing those that are sexually broken, explicitly, obviously sexually broken. Okay, but then when do we see God purchasing us? Well, it's when Jesus voluntarily submits to dying on a cross. What is happening at the cross is this. Your sins are being placed on him. It's interesting. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mention the fact that the soldiers at the foot of the cross were gambling for his clothing. This means that Jesus is hanging up, raised up in front of everyone, naked, publicly enduring the shame on behalf of someone else. He is experiencing the shame so that you don't have to. And as he is hanging there, naked on a cross, your sexual disobedience and my sexual disobedience are undergoing judgment. And Jesus cries out in that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus is being divorced from the Father and he is being punished 
as an adulterer. At infinite cost to himself, God says, I will pay for your sin with the blood of my son in order to bring you back. The gospel of Jesus is where we see God's aggressive love for people like you and me who are sexually broken. And what happens is that God is giving up his son in order to bring you home and to heal you. And here's what this means, is that God accepts you as you are, but he loves you too much to let you remain as you are. He accepts you as you are, but he's committed too much to let you remain that way. He is committed to your healing. He is going to mess with your sexuality if you have responded to him by faith. Grace forgives you and grace changes you. Now, we're going to talk more next week about how that grace actually begins to practically change you. But just let me ask you this before we close. What is he putting on your heart that you need to repent of? What is he putting on your heart that you need to repent of? Now, just remember, repentance isn't beating yourself up with guilt. I'm not asking you, what does God want you to feel really guilty about right now? Repentance is not beating yourself up with guilt, and repentance isn't making promises and and resolutions to try harder and to do better. Repentance is simply the way home. It it is is God's gift to free you from the cesspool of sin and to heal you. It, It is turning from that which is killing you, like the prodigal son, turning from just your own mess and running back to him and letting him embrace you and throw his arms around you. So the question is, what do you need to repent of? Who do you need to talk to about secret sexual addictions that you may have? What is it that God's grace is compelling you to say no to next time that you face it? Grace forgives you and grace changes you. And so the question I just want to leave you with is this. Are you responding to his grace Or are you resisting it? That's the question. Let me pray. Father, you love us enough to forgive us, and you love us too much to not change us. Be merciful to us uh, and heal us. Redeem us. Liberate us from our shame, our sin, our secrets, and bring us into the light. Give us a cleansed conscience Give us freedom and joy and gratitude for your blood, which covers all our sin. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.